Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone. It is Nick Bradley here, and welcome to Scale Up Your Business. So this week's show comes almost live from Toronto in Canada. Now, the reason for that is I've been on this epic trip. It's something like four countries, uh, 10 cities over the course of a month, something like, I think it's just under 20,000 miles. And the reason for that is that I wanted to catch up with some friends, uh, probably also because I haven't traveled for so damn long. I needed to like go all in, like no mucking around. There's no like, let's just go out there and try and do like a short trip. Let's just go out for a month. But the other reason is I had to get to the US because I was speaking uh, on Matt Andrews stage at one of his events. So I wanted to make the most of the whole thing. So in Toronto, I caught up with my good friend, Mark Drager, and we decided that, you know, we were going to go and do a bit of a tour of the city. But we also thought, you know what? I had a great conversation with Mark on his podcast not that long ago. One of the most probably incredibly deep conversations I've had about my story and all that sort of thing. So I thought, you know what, why don't I return the favor and interview Mark on Scale Up Your Business? Now, Mark is an incredible entrepreneur. He's had a very successful seven-figure business. Uh, He's now doing something really, really cool in the space of inspiring conversations around grit, resilience, transformation, all of that sort of thing. So I thought, well, you know what, why don't I put Mark in the hot seat and we can talk about his story, what makes him tick, his motivations, and some of the things that I think are going to be important for you to hear as you are on your journey. Because, you know, one of the things I like about the conversations I've had on this show is that, you know, it's about the deeper insights that you get from someone else's story that may apply to you, might be something you need to hear at that point in time. And then that makes a big difference for you in your life because you can contextualize that, you can apply it, you can learn from it, etc. So enjoy this. This is one of the longer episodes I've done. In fact, it might even break the record, but there are lots of nuggets of insights in here. A really great conversation with Mark. I hope you enjoy it. So welcome to the show, Mark Rager. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's show. So I am recording this after just getting off a 14-hour flight. Yep, 14 hours across the world to go and see a good friend of mine and someone I've been wanting to have on the show for God, many, many weeks and months now. And that person is Mark Drager. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, uh, I've been on a bunch of podcasts, but this is the <laughs> this is the first time that I've had someone fly around the world to be able to sit across from me. This is one of the first ones I've done live. I'm trying to think how many I've done live. So we, we are literally sitting, in, we're in Toronto right now. We are sitting opposite each other. As I said, I've just got off the plane. <laughs> this is quite a nice way to do it though, I've got to say. But yeah, this, I, is, this, is, this is the, um, the mobile recording studio of Nick. <laughs> and See, it's funny because what I'm realizing now is when I speak to people, I like to make eye contact with them. But when we're podcasting, 
it's the last thing I want to do in the world is make eye contact because I usually have, you know, my eyes closed and I'm looking away and all this other stuff. So I, I've got to get used to now being in I front think of it people. makes it better. I think it makes it better because I, I, well, I say, so when I say I haven't done many of this. So I came from Dubai and I had an interview there literally two or three days ago, very similar to this. And it was one of the most impactful conversations I've had because the story of this lady, she's coming out very soon on the show, was so full on. That, and because I was there and present the whole way through, it was a very, very different experience than the last 18 months that we've had on Zoom and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But the funny thing about this conversation is we've been friends now for a few months and this is the first time we've met today. It is. <laughs> and I didn't recognize you when we were pulling you up. You're waving, you're waving at the arrivals gate yeah. or whatever and you had your glasses on, which I didn't know you wore. Oh, and, yeah, of course. And I was just seeing the top of your head from like, you know, over some cars. And so you got your mask on, you have your glasses on. Your hair is a little darker than it looks. Thought it'd be a little more blonde. And then it's because I look so awesome, right? It's because I look so awesome. <laughs> you know, when you've done 14 hours in a plane, you know, you like, I, I look like I've just come out of a hair salon or something. Well, you did look pretty fresh. There you, you, you know, so for those who, who have not had the chance to be able to, to meet Nick, um, man, he looks good. And, uh, and, and, and he's got these charming eyes and he's got this great smile and all of this stuff. So I'm here to embarrass you. Well, there you, you go. I'm embarrassed now. I'm humbled. I'm humbled. It's not supposed to work like that. You're coming on my show, right? So, okay. Well, here we are. We'll so, let's have some fun. So again, a little bit, bit of context and then we'll get into it. But um, yeah, so we, we met um, through an acquaintance and uh, I ended up going on Mark's show a few months back now. And I still think to this day, I've been on a number of different, I've been a guest on a number of different podcasts, but you asked me some questions that went really, really deep. And I still remember it. And it made me think, God, wow, you know, and actually helped me a little bit in terms of thinking about what I'm doing now and business-wise and also what I'm doing and how the podcast is evolving. So thank you for that. And just to sort of shout that out. So it's the We Do Hard Things podcast. Yes. And we're going to talk about this today. I love it. We can talk about anything. Yeah. You know, the, the interview that I had with you, and it's weird to be on a podcast talking about another podcast, but if, you know, for those who haven't had a chance to see it, um, I'm like endlessly curious about people's stories. You know, how, how did you get here? Why did you? My favorite question is like, why did you think that was a good idea? <laughs> and I know that's like a very confrontational question, but um, I mean, we dug deep into your story. And I mean, at one point, I think three quarters of the way through, uh, you even got like a little teary eyed and stuff. And I was like, okay, like, like if I can make someone break, <laughs> you, didn't quite, you, didn't, you didn't quite break me, but, but you got me, you got me emotionally attached, yeah. I think to the conversation. Yeah. And so, and also sometimes I think, you know, you kind of do things in life and you don't really, you, you either put them in a place where you don't go back there to really evaluate what happens, right? You sort of hindsight thing. And sometimes when someone asks a powerful question at the right time, you go back there and it makes you think about it differently. So that that was the experience. And since then, just to kind of give, give you a bit more, um, again, context of that, I've then changed, as I said, what I'm doing with both my businesses and also my outlook as a result of that conversation. Hmm. So there you go. Well, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but, you know, uh, we've spoken about the fact that as business people, I've been running my business for 15 years. And for the last number of years, I found that, that the company I founded back in 2006 was more of, um, like it felt more like a trap. I, I didn't, I wasn't happy. Yep. And so I've spent the last few years really transitioning and you were a big voice in my life this spring actually, because there were a few times where, uh, you would, you know, you'd, you'd send me a note and you'd say like, man, you're really good at this. Or there was one time where we were talking about clubhouse and hosting 
and you said, you're just, you're really good at this. And Jacqueline, my wife, who, who's off camera, well, I guess we're not on camera, off mic over here, <laughs> listening in on us. We were out for a walk and I was like, look at what this guy texted me. If this guy thinks that I'm good at it, maybe I actually am good at this. And there was this moment where it was a really, it was a really pivotal wow. moment. I, I don't know if you ever knew that. But. No, I, no, I didn't know that. And, um, but that's, I mean, that's really cool. But I think if we talk about the experience that happened post your podcast, right? So we spent a bit of time together on Clubhouse. Yep. You came and um, hosted, co-hosted the um, Scale Up Your Business Room. And and so we spent a lot of time together. Every week we were doing that. Mm-hmm. And absolutely is that a superpower of yours? The ability first to listen really, really well intently, but to ask great questions. And then I think also to be able to make the room, in this, in, in this case a virtual room, but feel very, very belonged in that environment. Mm. You know, really, really cool. So let's so now it's my turn to ask you lots of questions. <laughs> sure. Right, you realize this, don't you? You realize this is the table turning situation. <laughs> okay. So so you just said beforehand, um, you know, you're You've gone from being a successful business owner and and to now, an unsuccessful one, yes. Well, no, that's that's a, that, this is a mindset thing, right? This is a mindset thing. We're going to probe with that. Why do you? Why do you? You've said that a few times, actually, even in this these few minutes of us speaking. What is that gap then about going from being successful in what you were doing beforehand to what you're doing now, but not necessarily thinking that you're ready for that? So when I started my company, I was 23. Mm-hmm. It was 2006. I was 23 years old. The, when I when I decided to make the move was the week that my first daughter was born. She's turning 15 this October. And uh, I was making $45,000 a year. It was the only household income. My wife wasn't working. We were both young. And I said, I'm going to start this company. I'm going to make so much money, right? Like if if I could just do what I did in corporate for a whole bunch of companies, I'm going to make so much money. And it didn't go that way for the first three or four years. Okay. But we found our stride. We we were able to grow. We were able to build. Um, by 2012, 2013, 2014, I had a successful business. Right, I had a business where we could go away for a month and it would keep running, where the team ran things, where we were profitable, uh, where I could do anything I kind of wanted with it. It was a vehicle that I could take any direction I wanted. But I still wasn't happy. And I was never really happy with it. There was always, you know, we need better processes or we need better people. Or if we could only hit the next level, if we could only hit the next client, if we could only get the big national campaigns. And so we were always, I was always searching for what I needed to fix to finally love what I was doing. But I never loved it. So before we go a bit deeper into that, so what was it about the transition then? So you you said you had a successful career in corporate Mm -hmm. and then you wanted to be more entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. It always takes three or four years, by the way. Yeah, seven. Seven. Well, well, (laughs) three or four years years before you realize you've got something. You know, a lot of people give up within that first period of time. So, you know, you hear that all the time as well. But what was was that experience like in the beginning? Was Was it not what you expected? Was it harder than you expected or you just didn't have the same fulfillment that you thought you would have by leaving that sort of, I call it the trap of employment? So, so you have to keep in mind, I was so young and so immature um, that the good news was I was able to jump into something with very little to lose. Um, looking back on it, though, didn't have the training, didn't have, just didn't have the corporate experience, didn't have a lot of those things. Uh, and so the first few years was really just trying to make something work because I never, you know, what I loved about your podcast and what I love about it is even, and we've talked about this, your breakdown, the startup entrepreneur, the scale up entrepreneur, mm-hmm. uh, I'm such a startup entrepreneur that, that I can start things, 
But going out and getting funding, going out and getting money, hiring the right people, making the right decisions, building the right processes, I'm not great at. And so those first few years was basically just getting to the point where I was comfortable enough hiring the right people who could figure it out for me. And then once they did, the company would run. The company ran. I mean, that is entrepreneurship. <laughs> I know, but, but looking back on it, um, I outsourced all the decision-making. I outsourced, I, I wasn't, didn't have a strong enough vision for where we were going. There's just so, there's, it was just messy, very, very messy. So by the time we hit the point where, where we're actually pitching, you know, international brands, we're doing national television campaigns, we're, you know, we're being flown by airlines down to, um, down to the resorts for a week with a crew and equipment on a plane to be able to shoot stuff. We're working with the NBA. Like we got big, but we were always the smallest. We were always super messy. We're always all over the place. Like nothing felt tight enough. It didn't feel real. So we were a multi-million dollar company, 24 full-time staff doing all of this stuff, but it was all slapdash. It was all thrown together because that's just how I roll. And so I was always at every step looking to try and make it less mom and pop, make it more legit, make it feel more real, but it never felt that way. And so and just again, for everyone listening in, so just a little bit more um, understanding of what type of business this, this is. Yeah. Sorry. So, uh, so basically I started a video production firm in 2006 mm -hmm. before video was even really on the internet. Okay. So if we remember way back then, Google didn't even own YouTube. People were putting two, three minute videos up. There was a lot of like in 1998, you know, XYZ corporation was founded, like it was that kind of stuff. It was working with banks. But video became. <laughs> this is the live. This is the live studio coming in now. Google, Google thinks I'm looking up X Y Z corporation. Don't worry, it's normally, it's normally Alexa that goes on when we do that. That's fine. So, uh, so it became communications. So then we started doing like a lot of internal communications with people, with big banks, with um, insurance companies. Uh, then it became marketing, and then marketing became advertising and. All of this stuff kind of happened year over year. So basically an advertising firm, a marketing firm, but yeah. but we do strategy, we did creative, we did production, we did delivery. We didn't have a business model like any other any other business in this area. We were trying, we were doing what no other company was doing in this area. And that a lot of a lot of people like that, and a lot of people rejected the business model completely, and that kept us out of a lot of rooms. And that bothered me because I wanted it all. Like I wanted, I wanted to be in every room I wanted to be in. I wanted every but you know, opportunity. But you created a multi-million dollar business. But remember when I said that I outsourced all the decision making and it felt very slapdash? It 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 didn't feel like I created it. It didn't feel like it happened intentionally. It feels like a lot of my life has has felt very lucky. You know, like I put some work in, I put some intention out there and then things just kind of work out for Mark. Like, and I, it's weird to speak in third person, but literally that's what but it feels like. I'm watching, I'm watching well, like, hey, things just kind of work but out. But that's kind of how it is. <laughs> I mean, okay, so, you know, from if, without sort of saying, you know, well, you know, look, I've done all these different things in business, but I've been around hundreds and hundreds of different businesses and business models. It's always like that. It doesn't look like it from the outside in, right? Yeah. So, you know, when you're out from, when you looking at you look and you look and say, wow, you know, that person's built this thing. It's amazing. So you don't like look at businesses like Nike, right? That look really, really precise now. If you read the stories behind it, they weren't. They were, they were this close to closing. 
you know, because, you know, Phil Knight, you know, he's out there, you know, trying to do stuff and he's hustling. It's chaotic. So the reason I bring that up is is the appreciation of the journey you're on is kind of the, the traditional journey. But did you ever get to a point or have you ever got a point with the business where you felt you felt comfortable with it? No. No. And it's, it's, it's a few things. One, I'm, I'm very future focused. So mm-hmm. I tend to live most of my life in the future, yep. which means I'm comfortable with substandard things now because I know that it will get better. And when it doesn't get better or when it doesn't work out, that's when I kind of get down, honestly. So, so that, you know, that manic depressive entrepreneurial journey, the roller coaster ride everyone mm, talks about, yeah, yeah. the optimism to not even pessimism, but like hopelessness. It's like, we are the best and we can do the most to like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Are we even any good? Um, I, I can let a lot of things go today if I know that in the future, they're going to be amazing and better. And so, because okay. I live so much in the future that I can always see what the next step is. And it's only when the next step never comes, never materializes, never happens time after time after time that I start to feel like a liar or I start to feel like I'm not fulfilling. I'm, I'm talking a lot, but not doing a lot or things like that. So but things must have ask, come together though. I mean, it's, it's, you know, cause you, you use the word luck a minute ago as well. Yeah. So there's a point there, did you not recognize when some of those things did land? Because they must have landed, right? To be able to create a, eggshells, a man, like eggshells. So pitching business that I, not even pitching business, getting handed business that I didn't feel like we earned. But so, for a perfect example, um, there was a point in there was a point where we proactively decided to move up our average our average revenue per project. Yep. So we just said we are no longer going to accept any projects that are white labeled, working through another agency or whatever, because no control. No, low profit margins, drags out, t- makes us look terrible. So we're just going to say no to that. We're also going to raise our pricing and we're just not going to accept any projects below whatever, the $10,000, let's say. Yep. And we're going to focus more on these larger commercial projects, which tended to range in like high six figure, you know, um, uh, budgets. So we're, n- but when we looked at all of our finance, you know, the 20 to $40,000 project was our bread and butter, just like we, we usually had like 20 to 30 of those projects on the go at any given time. And then our, our margins would just be based on how quickly we can move through them. Like the faster we can move through it, the higher the profit margin was. The more it dragged out, the lower. We decide we're going to go after these big projects that I didn't really want, that required account management that we, didn't re- we weren't really prepared for, systems that we didn't really have. And so we got handed these projects through relationships. Now you are going to say, well, that's how business works, right? You build relationships and your clients give you projects. But it meant when our relationships weren't handing us those projects, that, that um, profit center had no projects. So there'd be a year where we'd have like three or four of these major projects and it would make up 60% of our revenue. And then for whatever reason, the next year, a few of them would fall through or wouldn't happen. And then we'd have none of those projects. And so it was, it's all very organic. It was all. So what did you change the business model then? So if the business model was working really, really well at that sort of. <laughs> under the just ra- desperately unhappy. You said beforehand you outsourced some of the decision-making or you, you let other people make the decisions for you. What does that mean? Um, I am very swayed and I, I'm very, I'm a committee type of person. So it used to bother me. Like if you knew me three or four years ago, I used to bother me if my team called me the boss. 
because I felt like we were a team, right? Like we're all in this together. We're all working together. Yeah. And so I want them to share with me their ideas. I want them to have leadership. I want to create space for them to have control. But at the end of the day, they know that I own the business. I sign the checks. I make the final decision. And so it was very hard for me to, uh, to right size that and accept, no, you know what? I am the boss. I do have the final word. What I say does go like that was a struggle for me. Um, so when I say outsource the decision-making, it was, Hey guys, what should we be? Where should we be taking this company? Should we go more creative? Should we go more here? Should we go more there? And because I had such strong creative, um, employees that I wanted to keep, I wanted to keep their souls fed. So not only, you know, are we running this, this company that has super high payroll I have to keep the machine fed. I have to keep the seven figure payroll going month after month after month. I have to keep cash flow strong. I have to finance all of these projects because when we're dealing with a $300,000 project, we may get like 30 or 40% up front, but we're not going to get paid for like 180 days. So I actually have to finance all of this and keep payroll and keep the cash flow strong. And I felt compelled to keep my best employees creatively and strategically challenged. Because I okay. don't want, you know, when you're running a company where you don't feel like you can do any of the work your team does, it's so reliant on their, their skills and their abilities that you don't want to lose good people, right? Like that was, that was my biggest worry was losing good people and the inability to replace them because it's such a human driven thing, marketing, right? You lose a great copywriter. Maybe your agency loses the ability to, to write great copy because you can't go out and find that replacement. So when you have that amazing person, you want to keep them challenged. That's what I wanted to do. And so by doing that, I was always directing the company to what would keep the staff and what would keep the revenue and try to balance that. And I just got so tired of, <laughs> I just got so tired of that. I got so tired of like pitching projects that I wasn't really that interested in, but had to because the revenue would keep payroll going or pitching projects that felt so far outside of my comfort zone and area of interest, but I knew my team really wanted. And yeah, I don't know. And how many years did you live in that form of hell? Hell, that's a funny <laughs> word. Um, well, let me, let me, let me, let me go again. It was a grind that became hell. But probably like... Because the way you described it, I mean, I, I'm sort of yeah. feeling the way you're describing it. Three, four, it five years. It feels really hard. Yeah. It feels hard the way you're talking about it. Listen, like, like, and, and this is, this is, I, I've had to learn a lot about leadership. I've had to learn hmm. to accept that like no one else is going to do this. I have to do it. Like those types of decisions. Yes. But our fiscal year ends July 31st. By April of every single year, I was worried about the last three or four months because I knew we, we had a profit sharing model in our company and I knew which employees were driven by, by um, creative or projects mm -hmm. and which were driven by money. And I knew that I would have to sit down with them at the end of July and I'd have to deliver quote unquote returns. So that way there'd be profit. So that way we could do profit sharing. And if there wasn't that I would be disappointing them. And so for the last three months of every year, I would just be like carrying this weight, this push, push, push. I'm not driven by money at all. Like I really should be. I'm, I literally do not care about money. I want it so we can do things, but a good project over budget, I'd always rather take the good project. But I had this like drive where it's like, oh gosh, if, if we do not post returns, there will not be bonuses. If there's not bonuses and it's year after year after year of me selling this vision of what could be, but not delivering, 
again, I feel like a liar. I feel like someone who talks a lot and doesn't do, who doesn't deliver. And so, yeah, there was like four or five years of just like year after year after year. And, and it just ground me down. Who was, who was helping you through this? So, you know, did you have any mentors or people around the, um, you know, from the sidelines, you know, cause it can be a very lonely place being a business owner. But if you've got people around you who can either cheer you on or challenge you or keep you accountable of that, it makes it much easier. Yeah. Um, I mean, through the, um, like if we just, if we just call that period, like a, a, a trap I created for myself, because there's no one to blame for it. Like it's, and, and if I could have a time machine and go back, there are like three key things I would totally do differently. Um, and, and I would yeah, send me back to 2015 would totally change a bunch of things. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was part of a peer mentoring group with, uh, with our mutual friend, Evan Carmichael. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, was, is the best, you know, in terms of giving lots of grace and lots of advice and super patient and pushing in certain ways, but always, but, but with him, for example, it's always about Mark, what do you want? And then I will help you get that. And when you don't know what you want, or when you're always searching for what you want, or you're always looking for the so answer. So, do you think that was one of the major things? I mean, I want to go back to the three points you said beforehand, but do, yeah. was it was it that you created something that you thought you want wanted, mm-hmm. but when you were in there, you didn't? Mm-hmm. Always. And when you do that enough times, and so, so the very start of this conversation, you asked about the transition and why I'm struggling. It's when you create things and then get there and realize you're not happy, you start to lose trust in your ability to create things. Because what if the things that I want to create now, I will create and not be happy in? What if everything I create, ultimately when I get there, I won't be happy? What if I just like creating things? And, and that's okay now. Mm. But if you asked me six months ago, I, I wouldn't have even valued the creation as enough. We've talked about visionaries versus integrators with rocket fuel and with these types mm-hmm. of things. Yes. Now, I went, you told me about this. I went out and read the book. I, I, I steeped in it. I thought about it. And now I'm willing to go like, okay, being a visionary is important and enough. Being a leader is important and enough. You know, that's, that's taken me a long time yeah, to I actually mean, value and learn. It's huge, mate. Being a creator is enough, right? Or even having the impetus to start something and then not even finish it is enough. So the way I talk see, about it is that, like that's like reprogramming on my side. Well, yeah, because it, it feels it feels like cheating because I like it so much and it comes so easily to me that it feels like I, I've talked about being a liar a lot of times. That's that's the, but the that's, inner that's dialogue. That's that thing. I hate I hate this term, but I'll use it because it's it's the most commonly used term. It's the imposter thing, mm-hmm. right? But you know, if you think about it, and I say this quite a bit, you know, when I'm either looking at businesses that aren't performing whatever else your ability to focus on the thing you want to create and your ability to manage your emotional state through the journey are the two really key things (laughs) i suck at both of those (laughs) well i don't think you suck at i don't think you suck at either of them actually but i think i think there's a bit of a journey to appreciate them right so firstly if you're a visionary you're usually pretty good at working stuff out the thing you said that was interesting to me and i think interesting to people listening is that because you're so future focused you know you can't predict what's going to happen so the only way to do something is to go there, right? To go in there, which is going to fill outside your comfort zone. Yeah. And you might like it, you might not. But who gives a shit, right? Right. You, but you've got to do it because there's no other way. No. You've I, got to step into I it. I know. It's funny. And then like, the emotional state thing, that's probably something. So I, I've done a heap, and just to finish this point, I've done a heap of stuff to manage my own emotional states because I realized that the more 
I am attached to something, it can be really good, mm. but at the same time, it can also be really bad. Mm. And so I make sure that I try and keep as as I try and put it as in much perspective as I possibly can. Because like you know, I mean, you know my story. You know, I was dealing with you know one transaction could be worth billions of dollars, or it could be hundreds of people sacked. Mm-hmm. Right, that was what I did. And so imagine what that feels like to be attached to it. Yeah. Right, so you have to learn to be to, to be de- detached, 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 <laughs> emotionally detached, emotionally detached to be successful. And I think that's probably the that's probably the learning here as you start to explore different things is how do you manage that bit? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, the, on the emotional side, it's it's um, I, I think what most people appreciate those those people who like listening to my content or who who even those people who like working with me i'm like very open and vulnerable with things but for the most part i like to know that there's a right way to do things this is like a bit of a perfectionist trait yeah but i like to know there's a right way to do things and i like to do things the right way um and if i'm not doing it the right way it makes me feel uh yeah it's that it's that fixed what's mindset the, what's the right, right way though well, so that's the thing. That's what you're always searching for then. That's if, if I could go back to 2015, like I said, I would do things differently. Yeah, what were those but, three things? You said there were three things looking back in hindsight you would have done differently knowing what you know now. Yeah. So uh, we had really strong revenue, mm-hmm. uh, service-based business, so very strong profit margins. Uh, I continued. There was, there was always this like one to 200 grand that I would play with every year. And so- one year, it's like we're going to do content marketing. So I hire a full-time writer, and we spend you know all this time. And then the next year, it's like mm, we need more sales, so I hire a second salesperson. Even though our first salesperson is not really delivering that much, we do that for nine months. Then I let the person go. Like I, I, there was always this one or two hundred grand I'd play with. Uh, I would have gone out and got an integrator. <laughs> like, like, like when I think back, like we had revenue, we had clients, we had uh, market share. Uh, people knew us. Like rather than try to take the thing and turn it into the real version of it, and I'm making air quotes right now, the real version of it. Yes, I would have taken the thing and extracted myself out of it and turned it into more of an operations-based company. So I would yeah, have gone you basically, and got an integrator. basically sack yourself. So you yeah. know, sack yourself from the company. You're the investor, as I always say, the owner investor. You can yeah. still be involved strategically or in a visionary way, but have someone run it. And. So I so rather than play with this budget for marketing or for spend or for like I would hmm. I would have invested I would I would have invested in that um, I would have um, probably let key members of my team go mm-hmm. anywhere between five and seven years in and so I've had I used to pride myself on the retention of the team but our line of work like like I think many any time where you're doing a lot of creative thinking if you're doing a lot of building of things you're going to have a certain point where in the first year or two you're underperforming because everything is super challenging and new then by year three four five you're really locking in and then you just get bored you just get burnt out and so i had a team member for example who at year five in his leadership role i came to him and i said listen I need to know what your plan is for the next few years because you can't keep doing this. Like I can see that you're getting tired. I can see that you're getting bored, but you're such a great employee. So you tell me what you're thinking. And then a few days later, he came back and said, no, I think I got another two years. But within a few months, I was like, no, this isn't going to work. So I told him, you know, another six months, seven months, you're going to hit year six. We're going to pull you out of this role. Let's find a place for you in the company. 
but we're only like we're only a multi-million dollar company we're only a small team like i'm creating roles to hold on to good people i wouldn't have i wouldn't have done any of that i wouldn't have worked so hard because i would have just embraced that there's lots of good people and if someone leaves we will find someone else and also businesses outgrow people Yes. Right, again, there's a point that some, someone well, who's people brilliant. outgrow their roles as yeah, well. Yeah, but it's it's one of those things that, again, a lot of people try and build a company around the people as mm-hmm. opposed to being objective around it. So that's an interesting one, just again, for people listening into this, because I've done that previously as well, where I've had someone I've really liked. I might have liked them because, you know, I get on with them, right? Mm-hmm. But the business has changed. And then you think, well, actually, now I'm going to create a role for that person, but the role doesn't need to exist. And then, or there's someone and better for that role. I, I mean, you know. Plus, we're in a fairly high cost of living area. So, if you're trying to create an, a ninety thousand dollar a year role out of thin air that doesn't exist, just to hold on to someone good, and then figure out a way to replace that person as well, you need to generate new revenue. So, draw a line under that, everyone listening in, because everyone does this. <laughs> everyone does this at some point when they're in the the build of a company. Yeah. So, listen to this point. So, if I could go back to twenty fifteen, one. Um, I wouldn't. I would invest in operations mm-hmm. and an integrator. Yep. Two, I would be comfortable realizing that that life actually works more like we're all on our paths, right? And a lot of times, we hope that our paths are parallel. So if you think about a train train track, mm-hmm. right? The the train track is parallel and it has to be because it has to run on rails. But if you just if you just bring those a few degrees together, they're going to cross at a certain point, right? Your two paths will cross. You may cross for a, a few months, you may cross for a few years, you may cross for a decade, but they're on their journey and you're on yours and those are a few degrees off. And so you only get the overlap time. I used to try to want it to be forever and that's not how it, it works. Work. So I would go back and I'd be way more comfortable doing that. And then the third thing is I talked about keeping my staff like creatively challenged mm-hmm. and I wouldn't do any of that either. I would just be like, this is what I want to do. I own the company. I get to decide what we do. And that has only, I've only learned that in the last six months to nine months, actually, because yeah, it's okay. very uncomfortable for me. I did a personality oh. quiz, and my type of personality is the least likely out of all the 16 Myers Briggs personalities to be an entrepreneur. And I've done these other profiles and stuff. My profile is the least likely to be a leader. And somehow, I don't know what it is about. I don't know if I'm like, is it is the word masochistic or something? Like, I don't know if you masochist. <laughs> well, we're going to get on to what you do now. So, <laughs> so that's probably going to be a nice segue. But I don't know if, if I don't know if it's just that I love pain or being uncomfortable or what it is, but I am I am not built for it by nature. I'm just, I, I, I'm I, I don't. It's one of the. I, I don't like those those analysis tests. By the way, I think they're mm. interesting. Right, I use some of them, but um, but I think you know you can be whatever you want to be, but you've got to realize that there are certain things that you're going to find more comfortable or not, Mm -hmm. right? So I don't find entrepreneurship in the traditional sense comfortable in what I do, right? I like going into businesses and and scaling them up. I don't like starting them. That's not my thing. I I like fixing, but I don't like the beginning. Like, I hate that mess. Someone said to me once, um, what is it? Um, Messy messy in the middle. Uh, No, was it messy in the middle? No, sorry, messy in the beginning. Um, chaotic or something like that in the, in the middle and then glorious at the end. It was something quite like that. I forget, I probably bastardized the quote. But it was something like that. Like the messy in the beginning piece, I find really frustrating because I just want things to be precise, right? I love that. See, that bothers me though too because I, I, I picture everything as finished state. So like if there was a job where all your job was was to just spin out 
business models of how things could work, like whether they're possible or not and how you achieve it, I don't know. Yeah. But just like finished states of how things should work, that's how I think all the time. But that's kind of the visionary to some well, extent. Like, I'm yeah, like to this. respect this now. Yeah, there is. Well, exactly. I think, you know, <laughs> now, you, I'm like, now I'm like, oh, okay, you can just you do had that the epiphany all the time. in the last six months. <laughs> well, it's a, I want to have one last question though back on this kind of early, early part of the last, the last few years of your journey. So if, you know, you, you wanted to leave though your word of employment, right, to start something, to do something, why did you do that? Why did you leave the, the thing that you were probably comfortable in? There must have been something there that was pushing you or pulling you towards what you then created. I just um, always assumed that I would be running my own thing. Okay. So, Where did that come from? Well, my, my, when I was growing up, my mother ran her own kind of children's clothing fashion line. Mm -hmm. So this is cool. back in the 80s. So when I grew up, I grew up at the sound of like sewing machines and like shears cutting like cloth on tables. And she worked out of our basement and ran this little business. But my grandfather emigrated from Germany um, as a refugee from the Second World War. He was a refugee in Germany. He came to Canada in 1950. Him and three of his cousins uh, were bricklayers. And within a few years, they started a construction company and then they were able to grow it into a $400 million company and um, still operating now 70 something years later, I guess it is. Uh, and so growing up, I was part of a construction family and people who are in construction understand what I'm talking about. Like construction families, they just go out and do it. Right? Like, it's just like, we just, we figure it out or we go out and do it and we, we build it and we get, we work hard. And so it's just like, I grew up in this family where people started companies or they did, they just made stuff happen. You want to, my uncle at his cottage wanted uh, a tennis court and it's on an island that's covered in rock with not an inch of flat space. So he ordered a lot of wood and he built a tennis court. Like he just built it over a few weekends. Like you just decide you're going to do that. You do it. So I grew up in that family. And so when I was in high school, I always imagined starting something. And I actually had notes. So I started my company in 2006, but three years earlier, I was like looking at becoming a realtor. I was looking at um, starting different production companies. I found all these notes of different businesses where I could just do my thing. And so I, I don't know. So why, why would you then say you're not entrepreneurial or, or the, the tests would to be typically a said because, because I, I've never done it the quote unquote right way, you know? And so, oh. so it's this judgment, it's this judgment of, you know, I didn't call myself an entrepreneur for the first 10 years. I was a small business owner. Now in 2006, entrepreneur was not a cool title, but to me, an entrepreneur started multiple businesses or ran multiple businesses or went out and got funding or like they went out and did stuff and they made it happen. But I'm a, like, even this week, I broke all of the rules that you would, that you would live life by because we need to launch a new website. And so I spent four days this week researching servers, setting everything up, building the website, trying to figure out development. That's not a good use of my time, but, yeah, but, 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 but they're very... someone, finding someone to do it that I would trust and then waiting for them. And I'm like, I just, I want it done. I want people, it done. I want people it done. make this too. There isn't, there, there isn't really a neat box, you know, to, to sort of go back to what I said beforehand. Entrepreneur, the best definition of entrepreneurship is someone who can solve problems, mm. right? And ideally big problems. And make money doing it. Well, yeah. But the thing is, <laughs> but my, my view on life is money. Money is just, you know, someone said to me, that, uh, said this to me a long time ago, that money is a spiritual pursuit measured by zeros in your bank account. So it's about it's it's Money more is a spiritual pursuit measured by zeros. Yeah. 
Okay, what does that mean? So what it means is the it's a it's a way that we measure. It's the scorecard that we put to the the problems that we can solve in the world. So the idea being, okay. if I help someone, so this is the spiritual piece. If I you know it's the whole Zig Ziglar quote. If I help someone get what they want in life, I'll have everything I want and need in life. Mm-hmm. It's that philosophy. Because the idea is that, like, you know, if if there's a big problem out there in the world and I can solve that big problem in the world, whatever it is, right, you know, I'm going to be rewarded by lots of different things. And one of those things is going to be money because people mm-hmm. are going to pay because that's the, the form of appreciation or recognition of that. So that's interesting because the, the, the model that I have heard um, that I tend to subscribe to is is money for most people is going to be one of the three S's. So it's service. Mm-hmm. You can put it to work. Yep. It's significant. You can use it to buy stuff to make yourself feel good or it's security. You can hoard it. And and so I am like 100% a security person. Like I love keeping so much cash on hand. <laughs> I love just knowing what I can do with that money, but never actually implementing it or spending it. My wife, Jacqueline, is definitely a significance person, but um, I've never heard of it used in, in the way that you've said. I think, I think this is the thing, right? Like neither of those perspectives is wrong, but- I, that's why I don't, I don't think about money. People think I think about money all the time because you scale up your business and we talk about it. I know you do think about money because I ran a business model by you two weeks ago and you're like, I'm going to ask, how do you make money doing this? (laughs) Well, but I don't, I don't have a, you're right. I think about it, but I don't make it my main thought. So, so, so it's funny. Like I'll look at it and go, if, if, if this really is going to help someone achieve what they want to achieve, then there is going to be usually some form of exchange right? For that. Exchange isn't always money. I mean, how many times yep. do you help people out? You know, we do stuff, we help each other out all the time. We don't pay each other to do it, right? Yeah. But there's but there's a value to that. So, so money is just simply that as much as anything else. But so what's interesting though, when I, when I say I'm not built to be an entrepreneur is, um, is I'm not that competitive by nature and money is so not important to me that having the conversation about that exchange makes me uncomfortable. So whether that exchange is in form of money or later coming back and at, like I would much rather just give you something and know that you're happy and never make a thing of it because, because it makes me uncomfortable to ask for stuff. It makes me uncomfortable to get stuff back. It's just like, if I can give this to you and it works for you, that's enough for me. Okay. But and, that's, that's... And so, so being Canadian, being very polite, being very passive, it means that some <laughs> people notice it and come back along and go like, oh, here, let me help you out. But the people who then, you know, the, the jab, jab, whatever it is, uh, Gary the v, Gary V thing, yes, Gary v, yeah. like give, give, ask. Yes. I give, give, and then just hope one day that you'll notice. But the Zig Ziglar quote I mentioned beforehand. <laughs> no, I get, I, you know, this is a fascinating conversation. I, mean, I don't want to intellectualize it too much, but you know, the, the one thing that keeps coming into my mind as we're speaking is there isn't there isn't just a box that it all fits into, and there and isn't I'm learning like, that. It's like you know, you're an entrepreneur that does does things the way you do them, and yeah. that's still entrepreneurial. Yeah, right. Everything you've described is entrepreneurial. It's just maybe not the pattern of how you've defined it previously. Yeah, but it is. And and what I say to people is. Work out what type of entrepreneur you are, you know, or if you want to call it a different title, what type of business owner you are or founder. Mm-hmm. And then where you start to scale that, right, is just bring other people around you where they love the things or is really, or really good at the things that you don't want to do. Yep. That's the, that's the simple piece. Yep. And that's it. So, if, you're, if your thing is creating stuff, um, being more visionary, you know, uh, maybe not being good at the asking for stuff, the commercial piece, or maybe running all the processes, then play your lane and then just fill out the rest. Yeah. Which it sounds like you've learned anyway. I've I've learned it in principle. 
I, I mean, the next few things I need to knock out is um, I have very, very high expectations and standards of myself mm-hmm. that I constantly fall short of, which is why I beat myself up so much. But I also have of others, which they constantly fall short of, which is why I beat up other people so much. So, so that, that I have to work on. Uh, and then I don't trust people very much because um, I don't know what it is. I just, I just don't trust that, that they will bring the same level of intention or respect or honor or whatever it is where, to where whatever did these, it is. Where did these, I'm going to call them, to call them values, right, to yeah. some extent. Where do they come from? Because there's a, there's, a, there's a few things you've mentioned today around that. So let's take trust, for example. Why, why the natural lean towards mistrust? Um, I don't know. I don't what know. Happened? Is that something? Did something happen? Did Because my, my natural bias is to trust until the trust is broken. And, I, and that has caught me out more times than probably I'd like to admit. But I still do it. So I, I'm not... I don't, I don't know where it comes from other than um, I have been in the past very, very cynical, um, pessimistic, skeptical, sarcastic. I mean, that's, that's kind of like where I was, um, probably why I like British humor so much. But, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, us Australians are quite sarcastic too, but, but it doesn't work well in America. I've been caught out there a few times. Yeah. 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 They, yeah. yeah it's the pessimism and stuff. So, so you, you know what it is to me? It's just logic. It's, it's, um, it's, I, I don't, I over, uh, index on, on logic. So here's a great example. My mom was buying a new home and the home didn't come with a furnace. The previous owners put a new furnace, a new air conditioner, they put it in. And we're speaking with the realtor and she's like, you don't have to worry about a thing. They just put a furnace in. And I said, yeah, but they're selling their home. They're going to put the cheapest, worst furnace possible. Like, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're selling your home, it's not like you're going to invest the right money with the right people to do the right thing. You're leaving. You don't care. You just want to sell this asset. And the realtor was like, what are you talking about? that's that's a perfect example of the mistrust i know by human nature that the people selling this asset are not going to buy the top of the line best 20 years they're not going to work with the best people and guess what they didn't they bought the cheapest thing they didn't pull any permits it became a really big issue i was right i was right not to trust those people or at least if you're going to buy the stuff to know by human nature someone just wants out they're going to do the easiest thing possible Whereas for myself, I would probably still do the right thing for them. I would go out and buy the right furnace. I would buy the right plan. I would make sure everything's done the right way. So that way I know with confidence when we're selling the place, I can point out, look, we did this right for you. And that's that like right, wrong. But you don't know where this come from. Because either of those situations could be the opposite. It could have been. But, you know, you could have you could have put in the, the terrible furnace. I could have. You know, and the other person who you buy in the house of could have put the best one in. They could have. So there's the whole thing about, you know, we're all heroes and villains. <laughs> Depends on how we show up. <laughs> I've so, heard someone say everybody everybody is someone's ex. <laughs> well, Dr. John Martini, if you ever study his stuff, he talks about this. He says in one of he, he does a program called The Breakthrough Experience where he he shows you anyone who's done wrong by you. So some people are, are attached, use that word again, to an, an experience, an event, a person that did them wrong mm-hmm. and they can't get rid of it. It can be mm-hmm. all sorts of things. But what he does is he shows you how that same thing that happened to you and sometimes quite horrific things, you could, in the right circumstance, do that to someone else. 
Oh, I do that all the time. But it's an interesting thing, though, because it's it's the kind of the yin and the yang, the, the hero and villain. But but the thing is, why why the natural bias towards it? Did something happen? You know, you might even remember it. It might happen so young that that you know forced you or made you think more that people, human nature, is not to do the right thing. Uh, I mean, I grew up in a in a very strange, abusive home. So, um, I mean, there are stories that I share with my in laws. Where, like, my wife and I have been together 21 years. I've known my in-laws a very long time. And we were camping last week. And I still shared a story that I'd never shared with them before. And my father-in-law was even like, that's not true. And I was like, yeah. And I think I mentioned, like, um, growing up always being hungry. And he's like, oh, you weren't always hungry. And I was like, no, I grew up, like, always being hungry. Because we had, like, portions of food portioned out. We would get... You're giving me a quizzical look now. Like, where is this going? No, 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 I'm listening intently. I'm just, okay. I, I, I want to I go a little bit deeper into it. So, so what, what you were given on the assignment, you couldn't go to the fridge and just get food out when you wanted it? No. Why? So, my mom and dad separated the week I was born. Yeah. And they ended up being able to have really good, good relationship afterwards. I, I credit my mom for that mostly because she was very forgiving. So growing up, my dad would come over for Christmas. My mom and dad, they got along. They, they were able to stay friends, even though the relationship ended. But when I was seven, my mom remarried. And uh, my stepfather uh, was an alcoholic. Um, when they, when she, they married, she didn't know that he had mental health issues. So he had the manic side of bipolar. So okay. most people with bipolar have the, the mania and the depression. He only had the mania. And so he would go through these four, five, six week manic cycles where he would, you know, not sleep, get extremely manic. And so growing up, so, so from the age of seven and before, I had this really idyllic childhood. You know, my family was upper middle class. We would go to Florida in the winter. We would go and spend the entire summer at my cottage. I grew up with my cousins. And then there was this point where my mom remarried and then now suddenly the home was very weird. Like there was one year where my stepfather decided he wanted to start a church. So he bought a bunch of cell phones. This is like 1991 or 92 or something. Like bought a bunch of those brick cell phones because he's going to start a church. Um, REM's song, Losing My Religion, was the theme song for the church. Well, why, would you buy, sorry, you jump, why would you buy phones to start a because church? Because leaders need, phones. need to stay connected, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know. So this is the manic piece. This, 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 is, the this manic is the irrational. Piece. This things. is the irrational manic piece. But but so in this childhood of like just really weird, strange things, um, you know, certain rules. I was the youngest of all the kids in the blended family, and so you would go up and get food. He was tired of of the kids getting food first and taking all the good stuff. So you would go in order of age. So I would always be the last person to be able to go and then get whatever food was there. If we ordered pizza, we would be allowed to have two pieces of pizza each. If we wanted more, we'd have to use our allowance money to purchase it. Um, when I was in grade four, my mom stopped doing laundry for us. How old's grade four? Nine, I guess, right? Stopped doing laundry, stopped buying us stuff. Every fall and every spring, she'd give us $200 because they felt that we were not respecting our clothing or things like that. So every fall and every spring, I'd get 200 bucks. And that was my allowance for the year to buy my clothing, my toothpaste, my snacks, anything other than a main meal. You know, when I was, I was in grade three, I was uh, told to start making my own lunches. So I just stopped bringing lunches to school. I would just eat 
you know, raw ramen or something. So like all that, all that weird stuff that you might do in college or university when most people become adults happened to me when I was like eight, nine, 10, 11. Um, and all kinds of weird things. You know, we, we, when I was 13, we bought a property and decided to, to build a home and we built the home. So I was out there stripping cedar logs to build a log home. We built it by hand. Just weird stuff. I used so to get you in had trouble to, for standing. Uh, so you had to grow up pockets. super quick, pretty much. So you went from you went from this point of like you know seven, everything was kind of as you yeah. expect it would be for a seven year old. Yeah. To then having to act like you're twenty almost. I mean, yeah, responsibility have, level. You know, transitions. It's it's kind of like a pattern interrupt. It was. Um, we uh, we used to have family meetings. We get trouble if we talked about the weird stuff happening at home outside. So, so I never really realized how traumatic, and I, I never give credit for how traumatic my childhood was because my stepfather was a firefighter as well. So he would go off to work. And so he had a, he had a schedule that I still have memorized. It was like, it was five days and then four days off. So five days he would work. Those were the worst because then he'd be home when I got home from school and then he'd have five days off and he'd be home. But then he would do four nights in a row. So I wouldn't have to see him. And then he would do four days off and then he would do what we call the 24 hour shift. So that was a, that was a, a night, night, 24, 20, and then a day, day. So I had his whole schedule memorized because if he was working, then I wouldn't have to see him for a few days. And if he was home, then I'd have to, we'd have to follow those rules. So when he was off though, my mom would slip back into just like normal life mode. Like life would be cool and it'd be okay. And Wow. And and then when he'd be home, there'd be like this tension, like this constant tension. So how many years did that last? I moved out when I was 16. So when I was 11 or 12, I asked my mom if I could move in with my dad. And we did a trial summer and my dad didn't want me to move in with them. He had two stepsons and their life was their life. And then apparently, I don't even remember this. My mom told me that when I was 15... A few months before I turned 16, um, I told her I couldn't live there anymore. And I just said, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, I just, I cannot live here. I've, I've got to go live somewhere else. And so at that point, she kind of felt like things were serious enough that my sister was a year away from graduating. She was going to go off to university. I still had a bunch of years left in high school where we live at the age of 16, you are legally allowed to move out. And so I turned 16 in March. And by July, my sister and I had moved out. My mom uh, found us a little place. She she bought she bought a little property. She let us live there rent free. Um, we just had to pay all of the utilities. And so we arranged this deal. Like I went to my dad and said, "Hey, your child support? Can you give it to us instead of over here?" And then I had a job, and my I talked to my sister about it. My mom bought a place for us so we could live rent free. We just had to cover all the expenses, and then we figured out how to do that. And so. When I was 16, I was like free. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. I, I think, you know, how you said beforehand, when I asked the question, I'm not sure where it comes from. I think I know. No, I know. I know. I know. I know, I know the period it comes from, but I don't know why. Yeah, but there won't be, it won't be one thing. I mean, I, I, my um, upbringing, and you know this from our conversation on your mm. podcast, was not dissimilar, you know, in different ways. Like, you know, my dad left when I was two, but there was a lot of stuff that happened with remarriages and all that and some pretty traumatic things. 
but you're not going to be able to – the way I've, again, contextualized it in my life is I don't know one incident. Like I can name probably two or three incidents which are very memorable, which would have had an impact, but it's the, it's the compound, right? Yeah. You're in that environment for a period of time. It's like when people go away, and this is, this is this extreme example of what you said, you know, they go away to war and they have, you know, post-traumatic stress because they're in an environment which is just not – conducive to how they you know either what they have had before or what they want to want to um experience yeah do you know what i mean so particularly because if you didn't know any better right it might be might have been different it might have been, that's just how it is right yep. but you had seven years of it like this and then all of a sudden it changed yeah well and in the, the moment that i recognized that i grew up in an abusive home because i was never hit like i was never physically touched was never there was no sexual abuse there was there was not there was nothing that you could mark where you could be like i know that a lot of people had things worse than me still but when i was in high school in the final year of high school we were doing um this family studies course or something it was a bird course right it was just like oh perfect i can get a high mark on my grades <laughs> but they um we interviewed or they interviewed um a prisoner from like jail or something and as the person was talking, he was talking about his abusive childhood and all of the abusive, the abused children who go off to do these things that end up in prison. And the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And I was like, I could feel like I was having a physical response to his story. And I didn't know why. I was like, this is weird. And, and in that moment, I was like, oh, because the home that I was living in up until a few years ago. Oh, because of my childhood, because of all these weird things. And so that was finally when I was like, okay, I'm willing to accept that it was like a bit of a pressure cooker environment. It was those types of things. Um, and then a few years ago with, with Evan talking it out where I can say like, because I always felt bad, you know, if someone grew up in a f being physically abused, that's worse. You know, there's like, there's, there's worse, there's worse things. So, so the fact that I was like yelled at a lot, or yeah, but the, uh, yeah, I, I, I get why you would say that. Yeah, but it's it's not a a competition as to how you feel about right. it. Right, right. So you know, even something that would look minor from the outside in could have a major impact on a person. Yeah, you know, depending on lots of different things. That's how I always think about it. Because because it's not like you line up there and say, "Oh, my story's worse than your story," so therefore I get <laughs> I'm ahead of the line, right? You know, it's not how it works. But um, all right, man. That's that's wow. Yeah, it was. Um it's un, it's it's uncomfortable for me to talk you know there's a whole bunch of things that you've that we could circle around on but earlier you mentioned that you find yourself doing the very same things that people were doing to you and i'm a father of four and i know that the way that i treat my kids a lot of times are the ways that i was treated and i can watch it happening like i can mm. separate myself and i can watch myself doing it and and i don't like that so now jacqueline just says mark your tone Watch your tone. <laughs> well, it's usually it's one of it's one of two things. It's um we, we've talked about this a little bit before about um voids become values and values are defined as kind of how you act and behave to some extent, right? So sometimes if you didn't get something or you got too much of something, it becomes an action that you then demonstrate. So so uh, again, just for an example for people listening in. So because I didn't have um, my father around for a long period of time, I probably over extenuate that to my girls. So yeah. I try and be the person that wasn't around. But you had your grandfather. I did have that. So I had I had, right. I had things to model. But, but the point being, the point being is that um, you know you can either lean into it or lean away from it. There's no right or wrong to it. 
This is so interesting. We were talking about this yesterday. So my wife and I go for a walk every day uh, at four o'clock, which by the way, if you're in a relationship, the best thing you can do is just spend an hour outside the home with the person every day just to talk and catch up. But we were speaking about a mutual friend who um, does not like to give up control. Now, they're not controlling. They just don't want you to tell them what to do. They want to arrive at their own decisions, mm-hmm. their own way. Don't tell me what to do. You do you. I'll do me. And we're talking about his parenting style. And ultimately, I, I said, it's interesting because with his kids, he is working so hard to allow them to make their own decisions, right? Like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You decide. And I said, he values not being controlled so much that he's projecting on his kids not being controlled because that's ultimately what he wants. So I said to my wife, what is it that you want that you're projecting on our kids? And then we circled around to me. What is it that I want that we're projecting onto the kids? And ultimately, I spend so much time feeling afraid or that I'm not doing things right or that I'm not bold enough or thinking big enough that ultimately, like, I want my kids to just be courageous as hell. Because I value mm, courage so much because I feel like I don't have it. That, that my kids' grades, I do not care about it at all. But if they go off and do something bold or they make a decision or they step up for someone or they do something that shows courage, I just love that. And so with you even, with your kids, you're probably projecting something which is the opposite of the very thing you either struggle with or you want. And I think we may all do that actually. I think we, we, I think we, everyone does it, but it's whether, it's whether you're conscious or not conscious of it yeah, or unconscious of it. So let's, um, let's talk about what you're doing now. Okay. And also I like the, the, the pivot also of courage, <laughs> courage into we do hard things. We do hard things. So just explain to everyone listening, you know, what you've, what you're doing now, what, what this, this project is and what, what your vision is for it. Yeah. So it's interesting when you've had a chance to um, extract yourself out of the, the, what do they call it? The, the, the rat, the rat race. The rat race. That's the, what it's the, called. The, yeah, the, rat the rat race, the hamster wheel, the thing that you have to constantly do to stay on top of things, right? The, the company that had, you know, seven figure payroll that I had to constantly keep up. As soon as you hit a point where you start to let things go. And for me, the pandemic was like really revealing. Because when we shut down in March 12th of 2020, after the week or two of like freaking out disappeared, I felt free. I felt free because for the first time I had cover. I had an excuse not to go to meetings I didn't want to go to, not to, to hang out with people that I was hanging out with because ultimately they were good for business or good for clients or good for this or that. And I could just, I could just step back. And so in April and May, when everyone else is like really freaking out. I was like loving life. I'm like, I am free to just do what I want to do for me. And then we came out of lockdown and each step when we went back, quote unquote, to the old ways, I got more and more anxious to the point where last summer I was having panic attacks. And I was like, I just felt so uncomfortable because it felt like I got a taste of what life could be like not having to be in a service-based business, not having to be responsible for 20 or 30 client projects at any given point where I am the one who, if it goes well, even with the team, great. But if it doesn't go well, it's my responsibility. And so I just wanted out of all of that. And so uh, We Do Hard Things was ultimately 
just, I wanted to spend time speaking to people. And this is what I do now, which is what I love. Like, just please reassure me that if I go all in on the things that light me up the most, it will all work out in the end. Because after so many years, and I think a lot of, I think a lot of listeners can identify with this. You do things out of obligations. You do things because you're supposed to, you do things because you thought you wanted to, you do things because you have to. Well, if we're entrepreneurs and we spend 90% of our time doing the things we have to do so we can spend 10% of time doing the things we want to, or if you're like me, who spent a lot of years building something so that way you hope you can go off and do the thing you really want to do. And, and if you're an employee, you do this with retirement. How many employees work so that way one day they can oh, do yeah. the thing they really want to do? The majority of people. Right. And so my whole premise with Redo Hard Things, the whole, the whole point of the show, the whole mission is do not do the things you have to do so you can one day do the things you want to do. Please, guests, stories, you, Nick, reassure me, tell me, convince me that if I go all in on the things that I'm good at and the things that I love that everything else will work out in the end. And so that is the ultimate hard thing, I think, because it requires you to put yourself first and most people won't. It requires you to be clear on what you want. And I think a lot of people are either embarrassed about what they want or they judge why they want what they want. I think most people will not put the time in or the effort or they'll bump up against the challenge. You said it takes three or four years to start a company and most people give up before that point. That's a hard thing. Right? It's taking the leap of faith when you don't know what the outcome is at the end, but just saying, I'm going to take the first step, but I have no idea how this is going to go. You've accepted that. Most people don't. So like, well, I had to go through it. So, 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 so to be super clear, I, 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 there's a point where the fear of the unknown is the thing that stops people doing it. But mm -hmm. then you've got the thing, I suppose, change it for me was, yeah, but if I don't do it, what I'm left with is much worse. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about the rat race beforehand. The idea, I, I was working, you know, in this corporate job, private equity, you know the story. And the thing was this, getting on the train every day, the tube, as we call it in the UK, and just seeing everyone's faces mm -hmm. of death. Mm -hmm. Like people are dead, literally. Like, you know, five in the morning, waiting to get on a train. It's snowing outside. No one wants to do it. Right. And so then you ask the question, why, why, why are they doing it? Because, Why are they doing it? Because that's what everyone does. Because yeah. that's what life is. Because this is what you have to do. And they're not brave enough to try what, you know, what could end up not working out, but could lead to something exceptional. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. So, question to you then, since you've now been leaning into this, having these conversations, are you becoming more convinced? Yes. Okay. Ultimately. Good. And so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was... Um, it's interesting because I think often I worried, I'll speak for myself. I think most people do this, but, but we worry that if we spend time doing something that doesn't connect to the, the outcome, to the goal, to the final thing in your career in life, that you're kind of wasting your time. And at this point I can look back and go, oh, you know, when I said that I played with those one or $200,000 each year and I went out and hired a, a content writer to write in 2014 or 15, I wanted to start a magazine. Like I wanted to make our blog for marketing for video. Like I wanted to create something that was like a publication. Yeah. And now I'm actually doing the same thing again. 
And when I, when I realize that I love that I'm a big dreamer, like I'm, I'm such a big dreamer and I romanticize everything and I get along really well with dreamers who want to make something happen, but they need that courage you spoke about. When I look back through all of my clients over the 15 years, almost all of them are dreamers as well who want to do something. And so you hit this point where you can get out of the rat race, you can take a step back, you can have a little bit of, of time or clarity but you can realize that you're not making this huge transition, that all of these past experiences and all these bits and pieces have been contributing to where you are today and where you're going to want to go. But yeah, why, why get up at 4.30 in the morning to get on a train for five, to show up at work for 6.15, to grab your coffee so that way you can do something you don't really want to do or like, so that way you can get back on the train, so you can pick up the kids, so you can make dinner, so that way, ultimately, at 8.30 at night, you can sit down and watch Netflix for a show that interests you only because you have nothing else going on in your life. That doesn't sound like fun to me. <laughs> and that's what we do. We do it because other people do it. We do it because we're told to do it. And you don't have to do that. But I'm only halfway through this experiment. And so I'm interviewing people and I'm, and I'm asking these questions and I'm reading these books and I'm admiring those who have taken this plunge. And you're one of these people. You may not see that in your story, but the reason why I was so interested in speaking to you is because you've done that. And now you're on the other side of it. And it may not feel like that. Oh, no, no, it feels like that. No, okay. no, no, for me, and you know, it's, it's 100% that story. Because I, I sat on that story, or I sat on the, um, the idea of doing what I've now done a few years in for years. But I've been so long in entrepreneurship and I've been so part of the entrepreneurship bubble that we believe that moving from a corporate paid job or a job to entrepreneurship is that transition. And I don't think that's true at all. I think going from whatever makes you money to whatever you love or whatever you feel obligated to do, because you could be a stay-at-home parent. And you feel obligated to do that. And your passion could be going out and getting a job. So it's just moving from that, that version of life where you do things out of obligation or for others or because you have to, to putting yourself first, chasing down your passion, fighting through those fears, becoming a cooler version of you than ever before, like owning that, being you, being comfortable with you. That's, that's the thing that I'm kind of obsessed with right now. And that's the thing where I want all of us to go to the other side of that. It's not about going from a job to entrepreneurship. It's from doing whatever you have to do to doing what you want to do and knowing that it'll all work out in the end. Wow. Love it. <laughs> so, well, no, no, I, 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 can't, I can't ask anything else about that. <laughs> but I don't know if it's true or not yet. Well, the, the, but for me, it's, 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 it's a bit of leaning in and understanding what that is right so so you're on an exploration mm -hmm. more than anything else mm -hmm. and to some extent a bit of research and qualification validation of that that idea i think i i believe what you're trying to create is 100 percent true for most people in different ways so i think the way you said it's not just about you know i'm now an entrepreneur and i wasn't before it's about leaning into something i've used that word a few times but that concept a few times because most people 
stop when they're scared, mm-hmm. right? So you articulate that as hard things, mm-hmm. hard being fear. I, I articulate it through my mantra, you know, be grateful, be brave, have faith, show up. The idea that, you know, you've got to, you've got to do stuff that challenges you, otherwise you don't really feel alive, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes it doesn't work out the way you wanted it to, right, in the moment. But I've looked back on things that I've tried that haven't worked out in the moment. But if I look back, you know, even a long way back in hindsight, they've all worked out better. Yeah. But not, not right then. Most, you see what I mean? But it, most people aren't thinking about this, I don't think. And they scoff at it. Or like, if you're not willing to leave one job to another job or one company to another company because it feels too risky, can you imagine like what we're talking about? Like being willing to burn everything to the ground in pursuit of Well, I know people listening to this. That, that A lot of people, that's them. Yeah. In this, you know, people listening to this show. Yeah. I know that because they, they reach out to me and they say, you know, conversations like this or other stuff that I've shared or whatever else that they've now felt, you know, they can do it. Maybe it's just a small amount of inspiration. Someone might listen to this conversation today and they go, you know what? It was that one, one message at the right time made me make the decision. Let me ask you, who's one of your favorite people that you've had on the podcast? Favorite interviews, favorite conversations? My, I mean, me aside. Well, I was going to say you, of course, (laughs) Mark, fantastic. (laughs) It's happening in real time. Do you know, I've had so many fantastic conversations that have helped in different ways. I had one recently where... The story was just so powerful, similar to this. Actually, that's why I want to understand your story, where I can't believe that someone's turned themselves around from it. Okay. What were the specifics of it? Um, Father locked in jail, terrorist country, then forced to have to be a spy and do all sorts of really horrific things while your dad's being tortured in jail. Yeah. And then how do you turn yourself around from that? So we're talking war-torn. Okay. Middle East type of stuff. But you're the business guy. Yeah, but I think- Your bit, podcast is about scaling businesses. Yeah, but that's, it's not really. Ah. It never has been. Okay. So, so, so here's the thing, right? And people know this now, right? Yeah. You know, 170 episodes in. It's about who you become and it's uh-huh. about the mindset shift. Yeah. So my, my podcast is about that, right? That's what it is. The fact that we talk about from business right. is a nicely hidden, <laughs> right. hidden construct. But the, the thing is, it's about the identity of who you become. Of who you need to be to become the person you need to become. To, to achieve the things that, that you then want to align achieve. in your vision, whatever yeah. that is. Yeah. So, I don't know about an older version of you or not, but it would take courage to be willing to say, I'm going to have this type of conversation and not just stick to business and scaling and operations and process and hiring and finance and all that stuff that's in your comfort zone. That's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm enamored with. That's what I love. So if you spoke to an athlete or I spoke to an athlete, what I'm going to want to know is how are you a full-time athlete? (laughs) Right? Like, how is it that like, there are certain jobs where it's, it's, you know, you're going to become a doctor. No one goes like, oh, you became a full-time doctor. That seems crazy. But in this gig economy, in this world that we live in, There are things where it's like, oh, it's safe to commit your full life to that. And then there's others where it's not because your finances are unknown, your path is unknown, your career, all of that stuff. 
I like those unknown ones because I just, again, want to know that it's going to work out. Like just, <laughs> just, just tell me that it's going to work out. Well, I don't think anyone can guarantee it, but, but everyone does. Well, I think the more conversations you have, well, the thing is my view of it, it's going to work out in whatever way. Right. But if you don't do it, <clears throat> if you don't do it, if you don't lean into it, you know, I can tell you what's definitely going to happen is you're going to probably end up in a period of regret. Mm. Do you play what, with regret a lot? Do no. you, I don't, you I don't feel forecast regret or anything. Um, I do it through a vision. I do it through a vision. So, I, you know, you know about my 20 year vision thing. Yes. I'm going to ask you about this in a second. <laughs> um, I do it through the fact of By the way, we tried to see if there was any basketball. I mean, the season hasn't started yet, but we're, I'm like, I would have been all over the, like, I would have been all over the Toronto Raptors. game we can take them to or something. We looked it up. No, they don't start till October. But let me ask you this as we start to, as we start to wrap this up. Let me ask you this. What vision have you created for yourself in the next couple of decades? Now that you're leaning into this more exploratory phase of what you're trying to create. So that's so interesting. Um, I can see retirement really, really clearly. Mm -hmm. Go there. You know, we're, we're 38. My wife and I are 38. So uh, we feel, because of all that childhood stuff, I feel behind. I feel old already. But I know retirement's like 20 or 30 years away. But I can, I can picture it. I can picture the beach property. I can picture the cottage. I want, you know, I have this idea. I want to own both sides of the river, I say. So a river mm -hmm. on any property is like a natural boundary. I want a property that's so large that I can just hide and disappear in it. So I always say I want to own both sides of the river. Because if, if you can have three, four, five hundred acres and there's a river running through it and you own both sides, I feel like then you're breaking like natural convention because it's not only that you have that side of it, you own the other side of it as well. I don't know. There's something about that. Um, but this is what bothers Evan so much is like most of my dreams and most of my um, things that I want to work towards is hiding. Is like, I want, I want to be able to go off and do anything I want to do. I want to, I want to meet cool people. I want to do cool shit. I want to learn cool things and I just want people to leave me alone. Like ultimately that's what I want. It sounds like the great Gatsby. You ever seen that? <laughs> I've not. <laughs> I've well, not he lives, he, oh, Yeah. Well, he lives in this amazing house, but you never see him. But, um, anyway. yeah. And so, so it's like this, this weird push pull because it's like, it's like my, my expectations on the finance side and the type of life I want to live are just so high. Like, like you talk about, you talk about multi-generational wealth, right? You yeah. talk about, um, building, you know, life changing wealth. I just expect that that will happen, but it probably, I mean, it may, it may not. I, like it won't happen unless I work towards it. And part of me saying like, I just feel like things work out. I, I, I express it and it just kind of works out that way. I'm hoping it does. But, um, but mostly at this point in my life, in the transition, I just want to, like I said, I want to do really cool things. And I want to speak to really cool people. And I want to learn constantly. And then I just want to be left alone. <laughs> like that is my goal. Just well, the good thing about recording a podcast like this is this is now immortalized. Immortalized, you know, only 20,000, 30,000 people are going to, you know, listen to this in a few weeks. Time. But, but even saying that <laughs> makes me feel like, well, doesn't everyone want to do that? And, and I know that they don't, but, but yeah, that's, I, I think, that's I think, my ambition. I, I, right I think, you know, first and foremost, you, you did, 
people don't necessarily want to be left alone. I think it's more the fact of, you know, if you if you stay present as much as you possibly can on kind of the stuff you're creating now, right? The stuff you said beforehand, you know, you want to have great conversations. You want to sort of see what opens up. You don't know what that's going to turn into. No. One, one conversation can open up so many different doors, you know, and different perspectives. This will happen to me. So you're, so, you're an endless optimist, aren't you? <clears throat> uh, I am pretty optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you guys can hear the smile he has on his face right now. But. Well, I have I have been traveling for 14 hours in a plane as well. As a, <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the coffee or the caffeine from Starbucks is wearing out. No. Um, all right. So what I'm going to say then is, you know, th- this has been really, really interesting for me because I didn't know as much about you as I now know, mm. which is great. So this is cool, even though we've spent a lot of time together and you've shared it quite eloquently on this podcast, which is cool. Have you have you shared some of that stuff before in this way? Um, I will answer any question people throw to me. Most people don't ask. So thank you for asking. No, but, no, um, I'm just really curious. But <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm never quite sure how to explain my childhood and I don't know if I've done it even well. Um, and so I keep everything very shallow and surface, but you know, what's so great about the, your podcast and the type of conversations you have is you give space and time to be able to dig into that stuff. So um, it's very clear to me now, having spent time with you over the last few months as to why you're doing what you're doing and also why you're doing it in the way you're doing it. <laughs> Thank you. No, absolutely. No, 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 no. There's no, there's no, no, absolutely. But I'm, but I'm always very curious about people. That's my thing, right? So, yeah. so for me, I can understand it now. Well, and I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because we've had a few conversations about this where as I continue to share more with you, I'm like, you're starting to see how messed up I really am. And I said that to you once and you're like, I oh, don't, whatever, it doesn't matter. Don't worry no, about I don't that. Think it's, yeah. But, but there's this, there's this guard we all have, right? There's this, we try to project certain things, but mostly, um, I, I don't want, I don't want to be a victim, right? And I don't want to cloak myself in victimhood and I don't want to have excuses. And I find, I catch myself doing that sometimes where it's like, well, I just attribute that to this happening. So that's the way I, why I am the way I am. Um, and I don't like that. So I try to keep everything compartmentalized and, um, and, and shallow with people. Cause I just don't want to dig into that stuff because I don't want to be a victim. No, but I think. If you think about what you're doing with We Do Hard Things and and also the sharing of what you have on this, you know, conversation today, as I said, you don't know what other people are going through. Mm-hmm. And sometimes sharing gives permission, mm-hmm. right? And there's stuff that, you know, you don't know who's going to listen to this. You don't know where in the world they're going to listen to this. You don't know, as I said beforehand, if that's the message they needed to hear today. Yeah. Right? So what you're doing, right? Now, you've created something that lights you up, right? You know, from, you know, a void, you know, as we've, we've unlocked. And you don't know where it's going to go. You have no idea. Right. But you're going to lean into it, you know, and, and that's, that's the beauty of it. So my sort of summary of it is, you know, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, it doesn't have to be the same idea. It may be totally different, but that's, that's what you need to go away and reflect on because that's what's underpinned by what you're doing. And to some extent, what I'm doing is to give people maybe the insight that that space, as you mentioned beforehand, to then explore what they could do. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. Right. And I think that that has power more than probably what people appreciate. You know, one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the last year is when I was last summer, when we were coming out of lockdown, when everyone was feeling more free and I was feeling more anxious when I was having panic attacks, uh, I would talk to Evan Carmichael, my friend, uh, my wife would go on a walk with me and I was just so desperately unhappy. And I kept saying, if I could just replace our household income I would do anything but this. And each of them said, well, what would you do? 
And looking back, I realized that that wasn't the right question. Like, it's not their fault, but I, I didn't have an answer. And while you were in it, I could not come up with an answer. And so every time that I went to them, they gave me permission to do anything I wanted as long as I knew what I was going to do next. And I could not figure out what I was going to do next because I was so busy panicking about what I was doing at the time. And so it was this slow devolve over like seven months, eight months, letting go of this, letting go of this till finally the point where I was like, I have to change. Like at all costs, I have to change. I'm so unhappy. I've been so unhappy for so long that it doesn't matter what it's going to be. I'm just not going to do this anymore. And in that moment, I gave myself the freedom to start to figure out what would be next. So if you are going through any of these types of things, like I've spoken about, if you feel like you need the answer before you make the move, sometimes you need to make the move to be able to find the answer. And that is something that I've learned over the last year. There we go. We do hard things. Yes, so we do. <laughs> I'm going I'm 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 to pull it to a close there. That's a nice way to finish. Um, where can people find you? Uh, best place is uh, they can go to wedohardthings.club. Our website is there. Uh, you can go to YouTube. You can go on our IG. You can connect with us That's that way. So we do hard things dot club. And you can go and search for a, a funny conversation where the tide was turned with this person. <laughs> As I said, it's still one of the most impactful conversations I've had. So absolutely go and, go and look up Mark. Um, he hangs out in Clubhouse quite a lot as well, doing cool stuff there. Um, and uh, yeah, if you want to get in touch with him, then yeah, please reach out. He's always very generous with his time. So Mark Drager. What a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And there you have it. Another episode of Scale Up Your Business. Thank you very much for listening. And if you haven't yet, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show become even better. And while you're there, make sure you hit that subscribe button to help you on your scale up journey. Now, perhaps you're thinking of growing and scaling your business. Perhaps now is the time. If that's you, then please check out suyb.global. That's where we have all of our programs, including the Growth Accelerator Partnership, the Maximize Value Partnership, all of our services, and of course, coaching and mentoring. Once again, be grateful, be brave, have faith, and show up. Until next time.